You're listening to the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Hi, my name's Richard Harrison, and you're listening to, or possibly watching, the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Dibbly Dobbly Podcast. Before we get started, remember to like, share, comment, subscribe, and click the bell to make sure you get the latest episodes of the podcast. Be sure to like and share our Facebook page and follow us on Twitter and on Instagram. Also, the podcast is now available on Anchor, Spotify, and on Apple Podcasts. Joining me on today's cricket discussion is a former cricket umpire who decided to write a memoir recounting his umpiring career, from umpiring league cricket matches in Kent, England, to umpiring Premier Cricket in Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, where he umpired some of the best female cricketers in the world. He is an author and has written some other books, which are The Export, Gardener, and First Tuesday, Any Price, A Winner. He is currently working on a new book, which is called Positively Pazzo, Learning Italian Late in Life. It gives me great pleasure to welcome Richard Harrison. Richard, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Jack. It's uh, great to have you here, Richard, and um, it's going to be a great chat um, and uh, hope everyone will enjoy it and, and learn a lot about Richard and his book, as we will talk about in, the, in this discussion, and just have some fun. And that's what it's all about, hey? Playing cricket, it's all about having fun, and we're going to have some fun here today. Terrific. So, Richard, as I do with all my guests that I've interviewed on the podcast, I like to take them back to when they first got into cricket. And it's very fascinating listening to people's memories on how they got started in cricket. So, Richard, let's go back to the very beginning. Growing up in Australia, what mm-hmm. are your memories of playing cricket? And who were some of your cricketing idols that you looked up to growing up? I reckon I probably started playing cricket at school when I was about 10 years old. And... Oh, gee, through once I got to about the age of about 14 or so, I was able to um, use my father's, what they used to call a, a ladies' ticket to get into the MCG members. Um, and I used to go there after school and certainly through the school holidays and see, gee, people like Dennis Lilly and the Chapel Brothers and Rod Marsh. And I used to hunt around in front of the dressing rooms and pester players from every nation in the world for autographs. And oh, I was just having the time of my life. Absolutely loved it. And that's that's where it all started. Been a huge cricket fan since. Played while I was at school and for a few years afterwards. Um, had a back injury that sort of oh, curtailed things for quite some time. Would have probably played on a bit longer, but for that. But have always just had a tremendous love of the game, but it started when I was a kid and I used to idolise the, uh, you know, the great players of that era back in the day, probably yeah. before your time, but you can read about it all. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And now that's great. Um, um, yeah, it's, it's a wonderful game, isn't it, cricket, where it just captures you and it just drags you in and you never want to leave it, isn't it? You just sort of, it's a hard thing to describe really, isn't it? Oh, look, it, it's a game like no other. I, I think I even mentioned in my book, I mean, there's there's no game that's got anything like the sort of history, complexity and traditions mm. that cricket has. Um, it's, it's, it's unique in so many ways. 
Yeah, absolutely. Um, anyone that stood out to you, any Cricketian idols that you admired as a kid growing up, or was it a, a lot of players that you looked up to? Oh, look, uh, any number, but I suppose, I mean, going to the MCG um, and seeing Dennis Lilly tearing in from the southern stand end and the great, the theatre of him making a, a desperate, raucous appeal for a court behind or LBW against England or against the West Indies and the whole crowd erupting as a consequence as he would plant both feet in the middle of the pitch and arms outstretched make this desperate plea towards the umpire <laughs> and everyone's on their edge of their seats just waiting for the decision. It was wonderful theatre. And, gee, when you're, when you're 14, 15 years old, I mean, it's just, oh, it's just colossal. Hmm. It's wonderful stuff. Yes, it is. And um, obviously before my time, Dennis Lilly, but uh, oh, it well, you, great you missed to see out. the great man in, in action, you, really, wasn't you it? You missed out. It, it, it was great. It was great theatre. Whether or not he knew that hmm. at the time and whether or not a lot of the hysteronics, for want of a better word, were all sort of part of that. I don't know. Maybe it was all just entirely spontaneous. But he would effectively conduct the crowd making an appeal. And it was just, oh, it was just magic. Wiping the sweat off his brow. As he oh, all did. that, all that, you know. Yeah, it was all. But the whole running action, the arms mm. pumping it. Oh, man, it was just captivating. Yeah, absolutely. And there were some very great bowlers of that era as well. You know, Jeff Thompson and the West oh, Indian Four Horsemen. Um, indeed. It was such yeah. a wonderful era to be a part of cricket, wasn't it? Just growing oh, up was... or even playing the game. Yeah, it was tremendous. It was tremendous. Absolutely. Um, so then you got back into playing cricket. Um, when you went to live in England, you umpired cricket, of course, and we'll talk about that later on. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. uh, you had the opportunity to play cricket again after a 20-year hi hiatus or something like that That's it. For, That's it. for the yeah. Shivam Cricket Club. And you dedicated a chapter to the club in the book and you spoke yes. very passionately about the club and about playing cricket again and for them. Mm. Um, so what was it like playing cricket again after a long break from not playing well, the game from your early days? And why does the Shivam Cricket Club hold a special place in your heart? And tell us a bit more about the club for those who don't know or who haven't read the book yet. Well, it, it came about because I'd, I'd umpired a season of <coughs> village and school and some sort of social cricket in Kent, where I happened to be living um, at the time. And I uh, got to know a few guys from a few clubs and actually got invited by Shibben and one or two other clubs to see if I want to play with them. And as it worked out, I was able to umpire on Saturdays, but I would play Sunday village friendlies with, with Shibben, uh, which was only oh, about 10, 15 minute drive from my place. And the ground itself was on a, on a huge private estate. And it was, um, quite difficult to find just outside the actual village of Shibben, which in itself is only tiny. But it was just the most beautiful ground. It was surrounded by willow trees that every few years Grey Nichols would harvest, one or two, to make particular cricket bats. They would literally, literally be branded Fairlawn Willow, which was the name of the estate that the ground was on. There was a lovely little stream that ran along one side of the ground, a gorgeous little pavilion, 
wonderful little scoreboard. It was, and you were off the road, you couldn't see anything else. It was just like this wonderful little oasis. Um, wonderful atmosphere, gorgeous, gorgeous, beautiful cricket ground. The whole nature of it was just so wonderful and so friendly. It was just, it was just tremendous. Such a lot of fun. Absolutely. Um, any um, moments you remember from your your playing time for Shivam? There's quite a few that you mentioned in the book, uh, which are quite funny. Um, for those who have read it, you you would understand. But for those who haven't read it, um, oh, one that one that stories. One um, that. So any memories that stand out for you, Richard? I remember one that uh, that springs to mind immediately. I we were playing. It was sort of our local derby. We were playing a team called Plaxtol, and Plaxtol they had a ground over the other side of the Fairlawn Estate. So this was this was the local sort of derby, albeit only a Sunday friendly. And um, <clears throat> there was a fellow in the Plaxtel team that I knew from umpiring some social games on Friday nights in Seven Oaks when I lived where I lived. And um, his son was also playing in this same team. And we were batting first. I was, I was slotted in to bat at number three. And I sat there outside the pavilion while our two opening batsmen put on an opening partnership of 178 before one of them was decent enough to get out. So I finally got out there. I took my guard and I looked around and I faced up and who should be bowling but this fellow I know, his 14-year-old son, who, with the score on 178 for one, putting it in the English conscience, uh, managed to clean bowl me first ball. So then I made a very long and disconsolate exit all the way back to the pavilion, having been clean bowled by a 14-year-old. And then I remember a few... Um, Overs later, I thought, well, I've got to, you know, make myself useful. So I wandered out and just did a stint of umpiring because, of course, at that level, we all just umpired ourselves. And I can remember standing behind the stumps at the bowlers and just as this kid's father walked past, this great sort of cheeky smile creasing his lips, and I just said, I remember saying, right, well, you can shut up for a start. <laughs> he burst out laughing. <laughs> um, but... It, Generate three, two, three generations would play in teams on a Sunday. You'd have some kid out there and he's, you know, he's directing his grandfather to field that backward point or whatever. And um, you would always, always have a really lovely tea mid-afternoon. You would always go to the pub and have a couple of beers afterwards. Um, games were played in the most wonderful, friendly spirit. It was just there was laughter, there was uh, there was friendship. It was just wonderful. Beautiful surrounds, gorgeous cricket ground. Few dodgy pitches; they weren't always the greatest, but um, but the atmosphere and the nature of it of village cricket in England, it was it was just wonderful. If anyone ever gets a chance to play umpire or be involved in village matches in England, ever you should take it with both hands. It's a it's a unique experience it's a wonderful part of the culture and the nature and the fabric of the game mightn't be the greatest standard but oh gee there's nothing like it wonderful absolutely um as you said uh picturesque grounds you know you see those photos in england of 
players oh, playing they're... cricket and the hills in the background, the scoreboard. You mentioned that in your book about how I would go to a new ground if I've never been there before and just explore <laughs> yeah. the ground. And I, and I laughed when you said in the book, you know, uh, waxing lyrical about the boundary markers was a little bit yeah. too <laughs> But, I, <laughs> but yeah, we did. We'd, we'd, we'd go somewhere different every week and every week they were all, all these grounds were different, but there was always any number of things about each one that were just wonderful. It might be the, the, the ramshackle little pavilion or the, just the, the benches that were set up around the ground. We played at a, gay, a, a ground uh, called Falconhurst. That was a regular fixture for Shibbon yeah. on a Sunday. And it was always someone's job to keep an eye on the cattle that also grazed where the cars were parked because yeah. cattle would break off side mirrors off cars and bite off aerials and things. So that was someone's job to keep an eye on that to sort of shoo them away. Yeah, yeah. And the cricket ground was was set in the grounds in front of an enormous manor house. They're a National Trust property, magnificent play. And apparently, I was speaking to one of the um, Falconhurst players there one day, and uh, he was explaining that the cricket club leased the ground and the pavilion and all the facilities from the people who owned this enormous property. And they had a 99-year lease with a 99-year option and enshrined in the fabric of that lease document was a annual rental. And the rental for all of that, including the upkeep of the pitch and the outfield and all the rest of it, the annual rental was a case of claret. Now, you won't... I can't imagine... <laughs> you'll find anywhere in the world where such an arrangement might exist yeah. for a sporting team to play on the weekends and, and enjoy yeah. those wonderful facilities in return for a dozen bottles of wine in yeah, over the course of 99 years. It's, it's, yeah. Yeah, that just sums up what much of village cricket in England yeah. is. I mean, it's, it's, it's quite, a unique, quite a unique phenomenon. Yes, um, just a question is... Uh... Is that lease still going? It's 99 years. Oh, yeah. Oh, time. yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, regular fixture for uh, for the Shibbon Rams. Um, yeah, no, I still keep in touch um, with uh, a few guys from over there. So, yeah, no, Falcon Hurt's always on the schedule. Although, interestingly, we had a fellow um, who played with us, probably still does, I dare say. He was our fixture secretary. And if ever... Yeah, an opportunity opened up for a new game throughout the season. His criteria was that the players from the club that we would play drank afterwards at a pub that had a particular beer on tap, his favourite beer. Mm. So he would always ask them, so that's fine, yeah, we've got a date that's opened up there. And he said, now, where do you guys go for a beer after the game? And they'd say, oh, the such and such, the you know pig and whistle or the... Um, King's Head or something, and he'd say, now, if they got Harvey's on tap, and if they said no, Harvey's Sussex Bitter was his favourite beer. He said, no, nah, can't help you. If they had Harvey's Sussex Bitter on tap, <laughs> he'd schedule them in. But if they did, said, if you, if you didn't drink Harvey's yeah. after the game, no, nah, didn't yeah, happen. I get it. That, that, was yeah. the, that was the selection criteria. Yeah. Nothing to do with the state of the pitch or the standard or anything like that. It's where you go... What beer you drink after the game? Yeah. Again, it's just just these wonderful little eccentricities. Yeah, fantastic. That exist, exist in that um, part of the world. In the book as well, Richard, you talked about 
how that you had to get your kit because uh, you didn't have any kit, and you talked yeah, about yeah. that being made uh, being made at this um, company where you were living at the time, and uh, just going in there, getting your bats, seeing the bats being made by the craftsmen, and you oh, know, knocking it with the mallets and all that. Tell us about that. You still got one of those bats from, from that time, haven't you? Absolutely. So it sits behind my desk. Doesn't get a lot of use these days, but <laughs> I. I, there was a there was a sports shop just sort of down the hill from the flat where I lived, and I, when I was going to play again, I remember going down there one day and picked up any number of bats and just sort of waved them around in the shop. And in all honesty, there was one brand, one make um, of bat that was just different. It, every time I picked up a Salix bat, which was made by a local company in Kent, Salix I've since learned is Latin for willow. They felt better balanced. They just felt right. They, there was something about them. Yeah. And I ended up, I went to the factory or the workshop one Saturday morning and said, look, I'd be really, I want to, you know, I'd be interested in the back. Because they only had three or four probably in the shop. So um, I, and I started chatting to a fellow called Andrew Kember who owned the business. Now, he was apprenticed to a very famous bat maker, a guy called John Newbury in Sussex, and actually told him at this stage, look, I'm, I'm writing a book about umpiring and playing cricket in Kent. And I said, look, I remember, I, I think I've written this, that picking up one of your bats was like being upgraded to business class. And I think that probably did it. Next thing you know, I'm, I'm out the back of the workshop and I'm standing in front of this wall with all these, as they call them, clefts of willow. Yeah. These are great you know, not that sort of bats that have they've just got the crude bit of willow with bat, with bat handles inserted. Hmm. And he would take a few out and he'd hit them with this wooden mallet and he'd put them back and vice versa. Eventually, through this process, he narrowed it down to about three. And then he gave it to me and he said, pick that up. How does that feel? And eventually we narrowed it down to one and he literally went from there shaving off elements of the of the timber and basically yeah. shaping and preparing and creating this bat with me kind of test driving it at each stage and he would literally file the handle into a shape that was more comfortable for me to hold and it was an absolute bespoke masterpiece so it was incredibly lucky and this probably took a couple of hours mm. um but he devoted all that time to make this bat for me on a saturday morning and when it came time to pay for it, and I bought some pads and some gloves and a few other bits and pieces, and the girl working the cash register, she just shook her head and said, nobody gets a bat made for them like that. So I don't know how the hell you manage that. Uh, it was just right place, right time, just managed to strike a rapport. But, yeah. oh, it was fascinating to see it, to see the way he went about it, the precision mm. and the concentration. It was almost meditative. Um, yeah. But it was, oh, the skill, wonderful, extraordinary. But, oh, yeah, gee, so it, was a, it was a hell of a bat. Oh, gee whiz. People, must have scored, scored oh, a few with it, I suppose. Well, I did. I, a few others probably scored more with it than I did. But, <laughs> oh, no, it was it was great. It was it was a very, very nice bat. I was it, very lucky. It does lucky. sort of unnoticed in the game, doesn't it, um, how bats are made and how cricket balls are made it's an art it's an art form isn't it just oh it is seeing them Absolutely. just carve the wood and 
you know, Absolutely. prepare all that. Was, it's, it's, it's wonderful to watch, isn't it? It's quite yeah, fascinating. Yeah, there's a, there's a cricket ball manufacturer based in Kent as well called Readers. Mm. Um, yeah, that was, went on a tour there one day. That was interesting. But, gee, to go to the Salix workshop and have that fellow literally craft that bat while I'm standing there and literally, you know, just for me, and sort of testing the the feel and the weight and the balance of it at each stage was uh, was really something quite special. Yeah, absolutely. Um, uh, when you reflect at your time at Shivam, um, what are your best memories of the club and the players and the friends you've made? Because um, you must have made a lot of friends and and, and made new oh, friends as well. In that absolutely. Time. Oh, absolutely. It's 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 the friendships you made. It just it, the the laughter that happens out on the field. I mean, nothing's. It was our games were Sunday friendly, so nothing really mattered. Um, I made some wonderful friends with some wonderful characters, um, and amongst some of the opposition players as well. Um, look, it, it was it was nice to win a game. It was nice to get a few runs, take a catch, take a few wickets, and the like. But um, it was yeah, it was the it was the friendships that 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 resulted from all of that. It was yeah. it was the vehicle to to establish those things, which is yeah, really quite unique and and yeah, wonderful. Very lucky. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And I think that's what cricket's about, isn't it? Mateships, camaraderieship. When you're playing a team, and oh, absolutely, absolutely, it's, it's and such look. I hadn't team. I hadn't played for twenty years, so hmm. um, yeah, it was it was I, I rediscovered my great love of the game, both through umpiring and particularly playing there. Um, and I, I thought all that had been lost to me. I had no desire, yeah. no intention to ever get involved again, and it all just it all just happened by sort of chance and circumstance. It was just. Right place, right time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, it, it was such. Um, it was great to hear um, about that and about playing in England and your, your experiences there. Um, obviously, what's different about playing cricket in England to Australia? What, what are the differences when you play village cricket or league cricket compared to Premier cricket or uh, cricket in Australia? Full stop. Because they are different cultures and different ways of thinking about the game or playing it and I, how I the think, game is presented. I think much of the attitude and atmosphere that um, accompanies cricket in England stems from the beautiful cricket grounds and pavilions that um, that host the games. I, I lived in a town called Seven Oaks. The cricket club in Seven Oaks was formed, I think it was 1731. So, you know, 40-odd years before Cook even landed on the east coast of Australia, that cricket club existed on that ground with probably much, much of that pavilion all that time before. It, it's, got a, it's got a wonderful history, and I think much of it said beautiful cricket ground, village grounds, mm league grounds, county grounds, they're all cricket grounds. In Australia, certainly in throughout Melbourne, they're cricket grounds that are football grounds in mm. the winter. Um, and there's, there are very few um, 
the possible exception of the Albert Ground in St Kilda Road in Melbourne, I can't think of another cricket ground that comes close to pretty much any, in terms of the aesthetic, in terms of any of the um, the grounds that I played and umpired in England. I think a lot of it stems from that. But in England, there's an inherent respect for the game's history and traditions. I'm not sure that we've got that here. In fact, we don't. Um, yeah. That's that's first and foremost in England. There's just it's it's just ingrained in the fabric of the game. Yeah, its history, its traditions, and respect for the spirit of the game. Sadly, here in this country, it's it's all about winning. That's all yes. that really matters. Yeah, that's, Which, that's, um, tr- that's true. Obviously, well, and, it's, um, yeah, that's that's my take on it. It's yeah. that's yeah, that was what I. It was a bit of a shock when I came back and started umpiring in Melbourne, um, having umpired for gee, six or seven years or so. Yeah. in England. It's a different animal in this country. Yeah, so it was a bit of a culture shock, wasn't it? Just, oh, it was. Just a different contrast between the two countries. Oh, it, it was. Yeah, it's it's no it's nowhere near as much fun. I sent an email to the then umpiring manager at Cricket Victoria at the end of that first season. Mm-hmm. And I said, look, I'm very grateful for the opportunity to umpire, you know, Premier Cricket here in Victoria. But to be honest, I haven't enjoyed it to anything like the degree that I did in England. Um, but I said that the exception for me had been a couple of women's matches that I'd done. And I said, look, if it's all the same to you, I'd like to stay on the panel but umpire women's matches exclusively. And I fully expected an email in response, the likes of, listen, son, you go where we send you or you don't go anywhere yeah, yeah, at yeah. all. But... As it turned out, he said, yeah, that's fine. We can do that. And for 10 years or so, I was the only umpire on the Cricket Victoria panel that umpired women's matches exclusively. Why, I don't know, because I think it's a, it was a wonderful time. But anyway, that's, that's, how it, that's how it happened. That's how it fell. Yeah, absolutely. And we're going to discuss about your umpiring journey a little bit later in this sure. discussion. You've just touched on a little bit of that. But we're going to talk about that a little bit later. So, Richard... Let's talk about why you wrote your book, Stumped, which is a cricket memoir about your umpiring experiences in England and Australia. And it's Mm -hmm. a very good book. I suggest everyone to read it or listen to it. Very funny, (laughs) very well narrated by Richard. Um, You'll have a laugh um, and you'll learn a lot about cricket and about cricket in Australia and in England. Um, So why did you want to write the book, Richard? Was it just a, a personal physical record for yourself or you wanted to share that with other people um, about your umpiring experiences and your love of cricket? Because uh, was it the, for those reasons or you just wanted to write a book for the sake well, of it? Or, or something? I, I, like I'd, written, I'd written two books already, one novel and one memoir of the years I spent living and working in England. And... Yeah. It was a friend of mine who suggested, why don't you write a book about your cricket umpiring? And at first I thought, oh, I wouldn't have enough material. Um, but she said, no, look, it'll be great, because I'd probably bored her rigid with various stories and anecdotes about it all. And she said, no, look, it'll be terrific. Um, and, and I thought, oh, look, I'm not sure anyone would be all that interested. But once I got into it, I absolutely loved it. Um in fact, I once I'd, I'd 
more or less finished it, or at least that first draft, it was all I could do not to delete the entire thing and just start all over again. Um, so I, I didn't have any particular ambition from a commercial perspective with it. I didn't expect, uh, I wasn't writing it to try and, you know, create a, a, a bestseller or some, you know, tremendous commercial success. I did it because I think it was, it was a celebration of the of the journey of the time that I spent in England and in Australia, and it, I think it was also a great tribute to the game from my own perspective. Um, tribute to umpiring, tribute to umpiring women's cricket, uh, and there were elements of of playing again. I, I was very lucky in that that was a it, I was a, a unique opportunity and a unique circumstance. Um, and if nothing else, it's it's a unique story. Whether people you know share in that or, or or relish that themselves, that's up to them. But I I it was a wonderful time doing it all, and it was a, it was wonderful, great fun to recall it all and present it all. And it's terrific when people read it or listen to the audio book and enjoy it. Yeah, I, I certainly enjoyed it. I, I listened to it twice actually. <laughs> Uh, the first time for pleasure and the second time in preparation for this discussion with you today. Um, and it was a, a very wonderful written book, well, audio, uh, nar narrated, I should say, uh, by you, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, I suggest to everyone to, to go and buy it or download it because um, <laughs> it's, it's a great story about well, your umpiring well, experience. That's very kind of you. That's what it looks like. That's, what, that's the paperback for what it's worth. That's my hat, by the way. <laughs> the rest of it, the cover design was done by a fellow in New Zealand, but I took the photo with the hat and they sort of took yeah. it from there. So That's oh, a um, nice touch. And I liked it how you called stumped, <laughs> you know, just using that cricket terminology. and Yeah, yeah, just, oh, just one of those things that just kind of fell into place. Um, yeah. Yeah, look. It's um yeah look it was it it was great fun I I'd love to do it all over again absolutely probably write another book <laughs> well I'm writing this book about learning Italian at the moment but I'd 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 like to be able to perhaps I'd love to go to India uh, yeah and write about cricket over there I mean I'd I've thought perhaps of you know, if an opportunity presents itself of collaborating with a mm. with a player perhaps you know one of the Australia's women players or something, perhaps. So, you know, we'll see what happens, what happens there. I've made some good friends amongst a lot of the, the girls that I umpired with over the years. So, yeah, we'll see how that falls. But, I, yeah, I, I, if an opportunity presents itself, you never know, we might go around again. Yeah, that's, that's right. Um, I also wanted to touch on that as well. Becoming an author... Um, You've written some other books, as, as we mentioned in the intro, and you mentioned just before your latest book, Learning Italian uh, Late in Life. Um, what drew you into becoming an author? What made you want to be an author? And and just explain to us, what, what's the process of writing a book like you have, these books that you've, you've written? What's the process that goes into, uh, first of all, writing those books and, and what really drew you in as wanting to become an author well i've always enjoyed writing i've loved writing um i never to be honest i never really thought i could write something that was good enough or worthwhile enough 
that anyone would actually want to buy. Um, but then I just originally I had a, I just had an idea for a novel. It was a murder mystery set against the backdrop of the Melbourne Cup, and I'm a big horse racing fan. And look, I just I just made a start, and next thing you know, I, was, I immersed myself in it. I would get up in the morning and start writing after a cup of coffee at you know eight o'clock, and I'd look at the clock when I'd run out of steam, and it'd be you know quarter past four. Um, it's something I once I immerse myself into, I just get lost in, and it's just it's just such great fun. I love the process of creating the story and of yeah. um, presenting the story much more so than, you know, seeing the finished product. That's great when it's out there and you publish yeah. it and, yeah. you know, you get a review or someone contacts you saying they enjoyed it. That's terrific. But for me, the joy of it is just is in the creation of the story. Um, I just love putting the words down on the page. I just type on a computer as I go. I don't have really any any sort of process in terms of how I structure it or how I go about it. It's just it's just something that comes to me, and I just do it because I love it. Yeah, that's that's right. Any advice for anyone who wants to become an author? What advice would you give them if they want to start writing their own book? Oh, look, for me, it's I write about things that I know and that I love uh, and that I enjoy. Um, I don't know that I'll write another novel. Writing fiction's hard. Mm. Um, writing a memoir of something that you've, you've you've done, that you've enjoyed, that you really enjoy recalling, easy and such good fun. Um, write about, if you want to write a book, write about something that you know, write about something that you love and that's something that you enjoy writing about and presenting and yeah. it's not work it's a joy but yeah I think you write about what you know write about what you love and find that happy me you're going to find that point where you're really enjoying it if you enjoy it it's it'll it'll just it's it's the best fun you can have yeah sort of sort of like treated like a hobby in a way sort of thing is it oh look yeah or it's more of a passion I think I mean it's yeah. it but yeah if you've got it if for, if you've yeah, if it's well, it's a, it, look, it's a it's a hobby, but for me, it, it's a passion. I just absolutely love it. I just love putting that story. I I figure if I can make myself laugh, I'm half a chance to get uh, get them yeah, over the right. line yeah. with someone else. Yeah, not absolutely. always, but uh, I I uh, and I I love reading books by people like Clive James was a hero of mine. Um, Bill Bryson is not people who write memoirs and who just write in a very simple easy to read style um that's what i've tried to sort of replicate in what i do yeah absolutely they're, um they're not literary works yeah yeah that's true um do you have any favorite cricket books that you've read um from authors or um that oh, you gee there's a good question you know, honesty, nothing that comes to mind. Um, I've look, I've read a few cricket books that sadly I think have been a bit dry. Um, I can't, in all honesty, I can't think of a particular cricket book that I've really enjoyed reading. But I, my, my favourite book 
of all time is a book by Clive James. It's called Unreliable Memoirs. Um, and it's, it is a memoir of him growing up with his mother in England while his father was away um, in the Second World War. And, oh, it's just, it's just a magic, magic book. Wonderful. Beautiful, beautiful, simple language. He paints such a colourful picture. Um, it's, a, it's a glorious book. Um, but I think there's a real, there's a skill in that. People think, oh, it's such simple language. There's no, no elaborate sort of similes and adjectives and prose in here. But I think that's, that's the skill that I strive to try and, um, try and replicate, is to paint a colourful, vivid picture using very simple, simple language. Yeah. Um, a lot of cricket books tend to get into, I find, get into, you know, those terribly sort of serious recollection of statistics and God knows what, I just lose, mate. Well, cricket is a, a game based on statistics. And sure, that. sure. Um, that, that's how we, we base it off in, in cricket. But um, you ever met some of your favourite authors? You ever contacted them for advice or no, you ever I, met for, them at a signing for their book? Or? No, for a short time there in England, I lived in a village in Norfolk called Wyndham, which apparently was where Bill Bryson lived at the time. And I was hoping I was going to bump into him at the shops one day, but never <laughs> did. Um, so look, they, they'd be the two, they, Bill Bryson, Clive James. No, never have. And sadly, of course, Clive James died a couple of years ago, which was a great loss. So uh, no, I never have. Wish I had, but uh, not so far. Yeah, um, it was quite interesting to, to hear about uh, your process of writing the book and why you wanted to write it um, and become an author and, and, and how you go about that. It was very interesting to, to hear your thoughts on that. Um, obviously, for those who wanted to uh, get, uh, get a copy of your books or, or anything like that, uh, where can people find uh, your books and where can people access them or stuff well, like that? Well, they're available... They're available, you know, at all the usual suspects online. And, look, they are available in bookshops. At least the paperback version is available in bookshops. A bookshop may not stock it, but if you went in and asked for it, they could certainly order it. I have a distributor that um, can supply it to various bookshops. And it's the paperback versions on, you know, Amazon and you know, Booktopia and, you know, all the Waterstones in the UK and all the all the usual online outlets. And so too the um, the audio book, Apple, Google, Cetric, Storytel, here, there and everywhere. I don't look after all. I just give it all to distributors. They deal with all that sort yeah, of yeah. stuff. Yeah. yeah, it's just too hard. But it's, let someone it's, else deal with that. It, 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 it's widely available. And, if yeah, if you're looking at it, you shouldn't have to look too hard to find it if you, yeah. if you want it. Yeah. Um, that was another question I was going to ask you. Dealing with publishers or and all that stuff, is that a difficult process, dealing with the publishers? or I've, I've published it myself. Um, I dealt with agents and publishers the first time around. It was a, it was a tedious, drawn-out process. And I, um, I enjoy I, – I would – well, I enjoy publishing it more so myself. I've got more yeah. control. Um, I have more fun. I'm more involved. Um, 
so yeah, no, I've the, this book and everything I do from here on in, um, I'll just publish myself. Yeah, much easier. Well, it is, and it's much more. It's it's viable in this day and age. Yeah. Um, you know, 10, 15 years ago, with the advent of the whole Kindle ebook platform, it just opened that opportunity up, and it is it is more viable in this day and age than ever for someone to publish their own book. Doesn't mean you can cut corners, and you've still got to. Yeah. It's got to look, appear, and be every bit as professional as a commercially yeah. published book. Um, is but you've got to you know you've got to make sure you use the right formatters, the right proofreaders, the right cover designers, and you've got to. You know, the biggest thing for me is putting that whole sort of marketing process in place. That's still a yeah. a learning curve, but it's um yeah, but it's it's a it's a it's a journey, and it's yeah, it's fascinating, it's it's exciting, it's fun. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, absolutely. Um, do what you're passionate in in life. Well, yeah. And have fun with well, it. that's just it. That's just it. I mean, they're not just books to me. They're 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 you know they're really sort of very much part of me. And um, yeah, I've I've loved the creation of it, and you put them out there into the world, and uh, it's uh, yeah, it's exciting. Absolutely. Hi everyone. Hope you enjoyed part one of our cricket discussion with Richard Harrison. I hope you enjoyed listening to Richard talk about his cricketing journey and why he wrote his book, Stumped. Stay tuned for part two of our cricket discussion with Richard Harrison.